their discussion on class is, I think, one of the more interesting aspects of a lot of AOs. So uh, this is going to be fun. We'll see, because uh, I've got some provocative statements I want you guys to push back on and to sort of discuss back and forth, because there's a lot here. Um, all right. Hello, and thank you for joining us today at the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. Take two, we are heading into more of 4.5. Uh, we are midway through uh, page four, 346. Uh, the we have seen how the capitalist machine constitutes a system of eminence. I'll begin reading in just a moment. Uh, anything going on right now? I think for the most part, um, I'm actually finally editing and getting these back out. So uh, you might actually, when you're listening to this, it may actually be closer and closer and closer to the actual reading. Look at me actually editing and doing my stupid fucking job on this. Uh, I'll get there. I'll get there. Um, oh... The previous couple of paragraphs. Go for it. Go for it. Guys, I think you're kicking ass, but I just want to know it's a great day for PGQC. I agree with that. Um, previous paragraphs have been leading through our understanding of kind of uh, libidinal investment, how people do things, how class comes into it, how we have interests versus investments, and where these come into sort of the development of not just our subjectivity, but um, the impetus behind actions. The previous paragraph very much focuses on more the libidinal investment of things and the intensities that libidinal investment attaches to. The way that they phrase it is, uh, libidinal investment does not bear upon social syntheses, but upon the degree of development of the forces or the energies on which the syntheses depend. It doesn't bear upon selections, detachments, or remainders affected, but upon the nature of the codes and flows that condition them. This back and forth, they keep going through to talk about sort of the underlying nature of what we may claim desires are doing and what desire actually is, where investment's sitting. Because one of the things, again, this whole book is about is the going all the way back to Reich's question of why do people desire their own repression? Which is uh, a deeply profound one and one that, uh, as I've said before, if you live in America, you feel it more than a lot of people have a feeling as a, why do they do this? And so as we start getting at, well, why do people desire blank? Are they desiring literally their own oppression? Where does desire attach? How do these things work? Where does violence come into it? How does it get exerted? And as we move into this next bit, um, we start making our way through the machines that we've been discussing and now into how class sort of comes to be and is sort of taken as part of this. And it is, uh, I believe there's a handful of deeply controversial statements in it that I find really provocative and very interesting. And again, intuitively, um, I tend to agree with them and we'll get through this. I'm really jazzed to be getting to this point though. So anyone else wanna uh, sort of give a top line before I start reading? Add anything to that? Yeah, but before I expand, would you say, when you, when you say you're jazzed, are you Coltrane or uh, are you Monk? Everything's Coltrane. Everything's Coltrane. It's a good answer. Very good answer. But yeah, just to, just to tack on to that, I agree with you. I think, I think their criticisms are extremely interesting and, and still very fresh. Uh, one thing that's been kind of churning in my mind has been as we've been reading this is, right, they keep jumping between um, several sets of poles 
because obviously one set of poles is never enough, uh, at least not in philosophy. I, I like that they're doing this because we're starting to see how, like, we've seen our re-territorialization can anticipate a possible deterritorialization. You know, we're seeing how the paranoiac um, both invests the, uh, the molar, but also anticipates um, possible schizophrenic processes, right? And we're seeing how they they co-inform each other. So I just want to highlight that real quick, that as we're going through these different things, right, we're seeing how a series of polarities for them um, cross-stitch together. I like that. I'm going to go ahead and jump in and start the read because this section, this paragraph just, there's a lot. So let's do it. We have seen how the capitalist machine constituted a system of eminence bordered by a great mutant flow, non-possessive and non-possessed, flowing over the full body of capital and forming an absurd power. Everyone in his class and his person receives something from this power or is excluded from it insofar as the great flow is converted into incomes, incomes of wages or of enterprises that define aims or spheres of interest, selections, detachments, and portions. But the investment of the flow itself and its axiomatic, which, to be sure, requires no precise knowledge of political economy, is the business of the unconscious libido, inasmuch as it is presupposed by the aims. We see the most disadvantaged, the most excluded members of society invest with passion, the system that oppresses them, and where they always find an interest, since it is here that they search for and measure it. Interest always comes after. Anti-production effuses in the system. Anti-production is loved for itself, as in the way in which desire represses itself in the great capitalist aggregate. Repressing desire, not only for others, but in oneself, being the cop for others and for oneself, that is what arouses. And it is not ideology, it is economy. Capitalism garners and possesses the force of the aim and the interest, or power, but it feels a disinterested love for the absurd and non-possessed force of the machine. Oh, to be sure, it is not for himself or his children that the capitalist works, but for the immortality of the system. A violence without purpose, a joy, a pure joy in feeling oneself a wheel in the machine, traversed by flows, broken by skizzes. Placing oneself in a position where one is thus traversed, broken, fucked by the socius, looking for the right place where, according to the aims and the interests assigned to us, one feels something moving that has neither an interest nor a purpose. A sort of art for art's sake in the libido, a taste for a job well done, each one in his own place, the banker, the cop, the soldier, the technocrat, the bureaucrat, and why not the worker, the trade unionist? Desire is a gape. I really like this paragraph a great deal. Um, we're going to take it a bit by bit. I think we have to take it in order. Uh, hey, Ken, what's up, man? Um, good to have you. Uh, everyone in his class, we're going to start with the second sentence, because the first sentence I think we come back to. Everyone in his class and his person receives something from this power or is excluded from it insofar as the great flow is converted 
into incomes, wages, wages of enterprise, defined aims or spheres of interest, selections, detachments, or portions. All of this, as we're talking about here, is this nature of the first sentence. The capitalist machine constitutes a system of eminence that is bordered by this great flow, this non-possessive, non-possessed thing that flows over the full body of capital, forms this absurd power, this excess, uh, you might say, on top of it. The nature of this itself is what defines aims uh, as it's codified into income, codified into enterprises. These define aims, spheres of interest, selections, detachments, and portions. These give us uh, our lot or are turned into our lot or the lot given to us during this time, during this codification of these great flows, uh, this great flow that they sort of are talking about here. The phrasing is interesting because when we start talking about sort of the flow of the social or the flow of desire at large, they are talking and they say pretty crisply here, we aren't talking about uh, sort of a, a conscious, conscience, conscious effort of defining out and building political economy that's done by, uh, oh, let's talk through it and have a discussion and we can do this. You know, instead, the investment of the flow itself and the axiomatic around it uh, requires no knowledge of political economy, um, which I think is, I think, fairly obvious. Uh, but it, this is what the unconscious libido does, and it is presupposed by the aims that are sort of given to it retroactively. Again, the thing that they keep harping on, and it's been throughout this entire thing, is this idea of this ex post facto rationalization almost, or this ex post facto generation of meaning that we invest in libido, but then after the fact decide why this happened and call it our own uh, after the fact. This happens socially, this happens uh, as we go out. This, this nature of things allows our desire to find an interest and it attaches to where it does, but the desire doesn't care about any specific goals or aims. The line here I love the most, and I'll let someone else speak after this, is um, we see the most disadvantaged, excluded members of society invest with passion the system that oppresses them and where they always find an interest, since it is here that they search for and measure it. The system is where they are searching for and measuring what their interests ought to be, and shocker, they happen to find an interest there. It is the nature of the beast. Interest comes after it can, it is the desire goes where it goes. And then we go, Oh, well, desires attached to that system. And therefore after the fact, I justify it these 20 ways. Very short version. There's a lot more said here, but I kind of want to stop there and give Jack, Ken, Drew, JK, anyone else who's here a, a chance to sort of dive in or disagree. Uh, it's cause I like a lot of that sort of phrasing before we get into anti-production, which I think is its own, uh, discussion as well. I want to ask, uh, is it relevant to um, uh, bring in the idea of the, the, um, the phantasm and the, because uh, we were talking about that in the, uh, the group yesterday. So does this, um, the, the, the socius-deterritorialization, um, re-terrorization of the socius uh, come after, at, or is that alongside of the phantasm? So um, I, I think the phantasm would probably be the words I'd have a tougher time with. 
because uh, right about this time is the switch when Deleuze stopped kind of using the term phantasm and began using like BW over socius. They're, they're, they're almost the same things, but he wanted to sort of build his own uh, sort of uh, process or meaning or element without having to refer back to Freud or Plato, uh, for example. And so when he says things like at the beginning here, uh, the capitalist machine constitutes a system of evidence bordered by a mutant flow, non-possessed, non-possessed, flowing over the full body of capital and forming an absurd power. The previous system, the previous paragraph where he's talking about the full body of the socius or the, the body without organs. These are the points where he's talking about essentially a phantasmatic uh, element as he's described in logic of sense. Yes, I believe so. Jack, you've been in those, do you agree generally or am I off? Cause it's, it's, it's a, it's tough to start crossing those terms because he stops using phantasm. I'm pretty sure immediately after logic of sense, because he even used body without organs in logic of sense. And I think he just reattached to that, especially after watery sort of came hard at him. That's interesting too, right? Cause watery actually brings socios when we were reading machine structure, the, the, the greatest watery essay of them all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we were we were surprised because we actually found the term socius in there. We we're like, oh my gosh! Like, I always personally, I always thought Deleuze came up with it, but you know, Guadri had that in his pocket, just like Deleuze at BWO. But yeah, I, I agree with you that with Guadri, a serious shift comes right because I just take the body without organs. There's a lot more going on with it. In, in my opinion, um, during AO, it takes a way bigger role, um, even as we're seeing here, once we start talking about uh, anti-production, uh, you know, between Socius and, and uh, BWO, you know, you see this too with Simulacra, where the simulation aspect is here, and it's implied in the conjunct, but it's not he doesn't, well, they don't really rely on the, the, the term simulacra nearly as much as uh, logic of sense would have you believe, since, especially as we're reading these essays, right? S simulacra is like, it's like the byword in the essays, right? But in Anti-Oedipus, you only get it maybe two times. So it definitely, I think it challenges some of our, how we're understanding the development of Deleuze's thought, uh, both for phantasm uh, and other terms that he had been using at this time. We're seeing like uh, definitely some changes, I think. Yeah, because it's, again, we're getting a lot back to uh, the nature of how we generate meaning and how we lay things in order, uh, how we say what we want or our desire. I'm going to use, uh, Ken, I'm going to use you as an example since you're in the room. I'm sorry, because you literally just posted a great example of this. Uh, Ken and I both have the same affliction. Uh, the affliction is that there is a particular type of self-care TED Talk that I absolutely adore hating. I so fucking hate it, I can't even tell you. Now, Ken, I believe you as well uh, also hate these sort of pop psychology garbage talks of, uh, hey, if you just want to be successful, just go be bold. Now, why, why do we hate them? Why do we attach? Why do we talk about that? Well, we could justify it a million ways, and I could tell you a thousand reasons. The fun part underneath it, though, is our, my, libidinal in, my libido, my unconscious desires, are investing in that. They're investing in that sort of energy, that response, that sensation, 
because it is pleasurable to me in some way, because it has generated satisfaction, because it can, because that's, the intensities of it is what does this for me. And it's a very strange sort of reality because after the fact is when I have it justified. After the fact is when I say the thing. It doesn't even matter what I really say. I'm trying to explain my libidinal investment to someone else. And that's utilizing representation, which is the opposite of being able to do that. So we end up in a really interesting place of um, our investments are libidinal. They don't attach to any specific concretization or actualization. They're not part of any real uh, you know, aim or direction. They're just doing their thing. But I'm assigning that aim and direction. I'm giving that meaning after the fact. And because most of us are looking for it in the system that we're in. Um, and that's kind of the second half of this paragraph really deeply dives into um, what uh, they have referred to before as um, the uh, uh, capitalist, oh my God, um, what is the term for having uh, genitals, men's genitals cut off? What is the term they give for Castration. that? Come on. The, uh, the, there's a term for the eunuch, the capitalist eunuch. Um, they've, they've used that term a few times. Marx used that term. Other people have used that term before. And it's because there's this, you're not really actually able to have desire out and you're not able to like, you know, positively affect. Instead, you are like the guard in, uh, or the commandant, I should say, inside of um, the uh, Kafka piece we were discussing last week, the uh, uh, penal colony. Uh, you long to have to you long seeing this machine working you you abide by it you adore it and your pleasure you believe is from taking part in that there's an attachment there and that's the second half of this i'll go ahead and dive forward a little bit um because it's um starting to get into uh anti-production which is fascinating in itself because anti-production again it's not a thing that is necessarily the op opposition to production even though it's that's the wording they use and so it kind of gets um uh it kind of gets a little uh janky i guess would be the way um anti-production is is a thing that basically uh oh fuck let me find i have my piece on this uh jack you want to grab a try it anti-production yeah. let me see if i can help out there because they they link it to the bwo and that um one thing that stuck out to me as we were, as we've been rereading 4.5 is um because they focused on the paranoiac and schizophrenic poles and re-territorializing and de-territorializing and even so far right we're talking about how um the product of something like an interest can be discovered in the social field uh both as Right, they talk about the molecular things that are there kind of welded to vacuoles, right? Or like, um, you know, this is basically lack, right? The, the molar comes with these kind of lackings kind of welded to um, the molecular assemblages as well, right? So this is kind of a paranoiac perspective on anti-production. But I, right now I'm thinking about, and I think it's 1.2 where they talk about the schizophrenic process of production miraculating and then they go into the paranoiac process and they use Judge Schraber as the the example, right? Where the paranoiac process 
um, is basically trying to um, basically cause the breakdown, right, to stop uh, the miraculation process, right? So you have God basically tormenting uh, Judge Schraber's machines, right, uh, haranguing him, trying to get the machines to uh, cease production, right? Both of which are conditioned by the BWL, right? But at one and the same time, they're, you know, this is how they work together. So that's how kind of how I'm thinking about anti-production here is like, it's causing the breakdown. Or to jump back to last section, uh, that kind of, it for our purposes in, in this section, that kind of transcendent death that poses that great problem for us. The sentence goes, <clears throat> Anti-production effuses in the system. Anti we're talking about specifically the capitalist machine. Anti-production effuses in the system. Anti-production is loved for itself, as is the way in which desire represses itself in the great capitalist aggregate. Repressing desire not only for others, but in oneself, being a cop for others and for oneself, that is what arouses. It is not ideology. It is economy. The nature of the production of this anti-production, the way that it happens imminently, the, 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 the almost obedience to it, the, the handling of it is pleasurable. This is the thing we want. This is actually the desire. And it's a really interesting sort of setup when you start considering it because there's a level of, again, anti-production isn't like a bad thing. We don't want to be assigning these uh, ethical sort of judgments on, oh, anti-production's bad. We want pure unbridled desire without anything else or any social, there's a, there's a nature to anti-production that they're getting in here that is produced as part of sort of the economy of capital and how it plays that is itself just part of sort of these larger machines. It's, um, it's a, there's a lot to be said here. This is the tougher stuff. Please, if anyone has a question, I'd love a second or two to read something if anyone wants to talk. I just want to kind of knit off of what you're saying there. You can tell I've been doing a lot of crochet work. Um, but no, to what you're saying, right? I mean, part of this is we're starting to get into some of the more, not only social elements, but right, we're starting to talk more explicitly about power right here. It's like one of the things that sits out to me when we're talking about repressing desires, again, how, how does this function so as to basically quell desire? Well, well, production more so. Um, at one and the same time, production is happening, right? So we talked about the molar. The, there's the molar escape. We're going to simplify it for this. Uh, there's the molar escape and there's the molecular escape, right? The breakdown, the breakthrough, and the difference being, right? In the molar escape, it's about um, basically one escaping, as opposed to one knowing how to allow. Uh, the flows to escape, right? There's kind of that shift. And I think you're getting some of that here, right? Because where I, where I see this point about policing people on that, um, at some level, Brooks, I think you're spot on. It's definitely like the erotics of it, right? We're talking about the, the consummation where the excess is consumed, the conjunct in that. I think what we're also seeing is that um, at some level, there's interest, but at another level, part of what's happening in the molar, um, and at some level it relates to lack, at some level it doesn't. I think what we're starting to see here is how 
uh, a form of anti-production is actually exerted in the kind of um, in how things like policing happen, right? So it's not just interpolation. It's actually like one of the things this is doing, and this is probably going to seem obvious when I say it, one of the things the policing aspect does is it moves other pieces of the assemblage uh, around, right? Just like we're talking about moving blocks of debt and blocks of code and flows. This is an exertion of power that moves these things, relocates them, um, but also causes them to be a different, uh, a different assemblage of production in a manner of speaking, right? It's the difference of somebody this would be a blunt way of putting it, somebody producing in the factory versus somebody producing in the prison, right? To be really blunt about it, obviously their points of goes beyond that, but just to give an obvious example. So you're saying that the anti-production is that aspect of, um, that the, that is um, repressing desire and, um, that's the, that's the cop or the super ego. I'm hesitant, to say, I'm hesitant to say that it, anti-production is the repressing desire. Um, it's more anti-production is what is produced when we have primal repression. That's my understanding of it. Jack? I, I'm reading it as the purposes of, you know, right here what we're talking about. They're talking about anti-production fusing in the system, very similar to like how they talked about right, which I'm kind of I'm kind of putting under the paranoiac perspective, but I think so. I think I think they're here tying repression to all of that, but they're doing that so as to say, I at least as I'm thinking about it, they're doing that so as to say that. The repression of desire and, and by, by extension, the use of um, representation functioning at a molar level does this kind of um, repression, right? It's, to put it really simply, it, it sounds to me like they're saying this is part of how the breakdown is produced, right? The, the breakdown that we talked about in 4.1, part of the production of it is through anti-production. But I, I like your point, Brutz, because I think it's also important to understand that anti-production doesn't have to function this way. So did, I'm just going to read a little bit real quick from, because uh, we're talking about social production ultimately, want to read a little bit from Holland, just because it's a big thing. Uh, the schizoanalytic concept of anti-production introduces the issue of power into what Marx referred to as the dialectic of the forces and relations of production. For Marx, the forces of production are always primary, even if the relations of production determine the form which production takes in a given society. All social activity not related to production in the Marxist framework tends to be relegated to an amorphous sphere of reproduction. For schizoanalysis, the forces of production remain important and maintain their own autonomous dynamism as a locus and expression of desire, but, in line with Bataille, they are given form and purpose by the relations of anti-production. 
It is these relations of anti-production that organize the social expenditure of surplus in ways that either inhibit or foster the institution of power relations of various kinds. To the familiar Marxist dualisms, then, schizoanalysis adds extra terms. The dialectic forces and relations of production become the interplay of forces and relations of production and forces and relations of anti-production. The alternative between the sphere of production and the sphere of reproduction broadens to include the sphere of anti-production. Finally, anti-production, as the organization of matter and energy flows on the socius, provides a crucial corrective to what Deleuze and Guattari call the exchangeism of Levi Strauss. In fact, the concept of the socius provides a materialist basis for what Strauss called the symbolic order, that is, codes and systems of inscriptions that organize desire socially in the different modes of social production. I'm going to keep reading because I think this is important, so just deal with it. As Levi Strauss has shown, kinship terminology and myths organize desire, conduct, belief, meaning, according to codes of a symbolic order, as do legal codes promulgated by despots to govern and subordinate people of their empires, and the laws governing the sale of labor and other commodities, for example, in a very different symbolic order. Social coding on the socius for D&G organizes bodies, practices, and objects as well as symbols and words, as it does for Levi Strauss, but for the founder of structuralism, social organization is ultimately everywhere the same and always amounts to a system of exchange. Women, words, stories, prestige objects, ordinary goods. However, for Deleuze and Guattari, chapter 3 of Anti-Oedipus is meant to show social organization is not the same everywhere. Forms of coding and systems of inscriptions differ significantly among three ideal type modes of social production they analyze, in part because desire gets organized or inscribed on the type of socius specific to each mode of social production, earth, despot, capital. Even more importantly, symbolic order everywhere is ultimately based not on exchange, but debt, which itself takes diverse forms in the modes of social production, as we will see going through. It may seem perplexing to have passed so quickly from excess patai to debt and schizoanalysis, but the importance of the latter notion for analyzing different types of power relations becomes very clear. For now, it may help to recall that anti-production is, in the social as well as psychological realm, simply a transformation of productive energy or force, whereby, quote, a full body falls back on the economy it appropriates. The conversion of a portion of the superabundant forces of production into a counterforce that absorbs, distributes, or consumes already produced products in the name of a creditor to whom a debt is owed. That, I think, is... Uh, sorry for the long sort of bit here. When we talk about the nature of how anti-production sort of plays in this and effuses in the system, we're talking about the elements that are in that way. Um, I have my desires and they attach and then something falls back on them and they it desexualizes. It, it, it's, it's a bit of a sublimation. That anti-production is there, is how I read this. I know, Jack, it's a lot to respond to because I just rambled for a bit, but am I close to how you see it? Where, where would you disagree? I, I, think, I think what you read is very similar to what I'm trying to put my finger on. You know, I'm, I'm putting it a little bit more explicitly in the paranoiac. Um, Get closer to your mic. Oh, thank you. I'm putting a little bit more explicitly in the paranoiac, but it really is, and this is what I mean about all these polls, 
it really is going to be the molar at the same time, right? Because we've gone through the gregarious and we've gone through how every molar uh, formation is a molecular, ooh, excuse me, every molecular formation is a molar investment, right? The functionality informs the structurality. They, they rely on each other, even though one is not necessarily what may, uh, it's not to say that structure precedes function, right? We don't want to fall into that um, problem either. But yeah, I think I'm I think I'm with Holland because that movement of, you know, what I hear you talking about is the movement of codes and how codes affect flows in that. And at some level, you can put that I think in terms of anti-production, because right, it's going right back to the policing. And I used a very blunt example, but you know, we can talk about how on we see this all the time on Twitter, right? And I'm sure we all feel it is like the kind of response that's elicited with um, some tweets or, or some comments on Reddit where one feels the need to, uh, and usually this is put in terms of call-out culture, right? Those kind of selections in that, right? At some level, you know, they're there, but part of the thing that's producing them, to put it in, in schizoanalytic terms, is right, they're responding to these vacuoles, right? They're responding to uh, these molar, these molar. Uh, I'm going to put that aside. They're responding to these different blocks, and it's a way of moving them through the exertion of power, right? But also to relocate them in terms of production, right? It's that escape anticipating the escape that um, they, they uh, allude to from Blanchot. Those are the great risks we're talking about that nonetheless we face constantly. Yes. So it, it's, um, anti-production is so complex. It's such a fucking complex one. Jesus. We'll, we'll be getting more through it. Um, as we get into the next kind of couple of paragraphs, especially it's just, it's, you're starting to hit the parts of the book that I think, um, I'm, uh, I've, I'm not saying I, I don't have trouble with. Um, I, ha I think I have a decent grasp on parts of it, but as we get through and we start getting specifics, you're not far off from where I'm at. So uh, if it makes me feel any better, makes you feel any better, I guess. Um, the, the remainder of this is talking through the behavior of someone who experiences this, this anti-production in this way, the ability to repress desire, not just simply within themselves. And it isn't so much that like, oh, repression is sexy and that's what they want. It's the, the investment happens and the anti-production sort of comes in as part of that closed offness as a thing is, oh, I wanted X, Y, or Z and you name it, you call it a thing. And as you do that, you destroy the ability for sort of, uh, I don't know, individuation, uh, and, and possibility space, you close that, and a thing becomes certain, essentially. This is why I did a thing, this is my goal, this is what I'm aiming at. And it's one of the reasons that their phrase here, I think, rings significantly true. The capitalism garners and possesses the force of the aim and the interest, but it feels a disinterested love for the absurd and non-possessed force of the machine. Um, the actual force, the power, that is in the aim and interest. Um, it, conviction, when someone says, I'm doing X, I'm going to do Y, I am that thing. This, this, this essence, this force 
is what capitalism garners. Yet at the same time, as a whole, it feels a love for the absurd, non-possessed force of the machine. The machine itself, as it functions, there is a desire for it. There is a love for it, an attachment for it that happens. Uh, the uh, eunuch of just Be Jeff Bezos, who exists to keep the system moving. And that's that's what he does. I uh, did scumbag piece of shit in a million ways. But tomorrow, if he was really free, he would be able to redistribute his wealth uh, and not be murdered by a lot of people. If he tomorrow said uh, Amazon had was going to raise wages by 5x and no one would make less than 100000 a year. Uh, he could do these. And actually, Amazon, I believe, has enough money to do that. It would destroy the company. The, the machine of capitalism would destroy him. He's, he's in service to the machine, and he loves it. He loves it so very much. It feels great to be part of something and to feel like you did your piece. Um, if anyone has been part of any chain of work, uh, yeah, there's the sort of old version of uh, labor where, oh, I, this is my part in the factory, uh, my world of software. Um, I take my job very seriously. I, I have stuff comes into me. I do my work and it goes out the other side. Uh, it feels good. It does. It's a, there's a, a smoothness and a simplicity to the movement around it and the action around it. And it's a very human thing to attach to because ultimately underneath it, and that's the next sets of lines, um, there is uh, in it uh, a violence without purpose, a joy, a pure joy in feeling oneself a wheel in the machine, traversed by flows, broken by skizzes, placing oneself in a position where one is thus traversed, broken, fucked by the socius, looking for the right place, where, according to the aims and interests assigned to us, one feels something moving that has neither interest nor purpose. And you have to really look at that very specific phrasing, um, looking for the right place where, according to the aims and interests assigned to us, one feels something moving that has neither an interest nor a purpose. Uh, that phrasing is deeply important here as well. Because again, things fall back on, they fall back on, not just production, they fall back on everything within it. And the aims and interests become assigned to the desiring machines within us just as much as the aims and interests become assigned to us within Associus. And that final bit is such a great line, that a sort of art for art's sake in the libido, a taste for a job well done, each one in his own place, banker, cop, soldier, technocrat, bureaucrat, and why not the worker trade and trade unionist? Um, why would we presume that the worker is the revolutionary vehicle? Why would we presume there's anything special about them? It's not. Desire is a gape. It's always ready. It's, uh, I have a feeling there's uh, actually a lot cruder of a comment I can make around desire is a gape that I think they actually intended. But I do think that is what they're trying to get at with these sentences and how they're talking about it. Um, please, anyone, uh, jump in. So it does sound, I'd probably, this is probably obvious to everybody else, but this sounds a lot like uh, a discussion about alienation, uh, the Marx, the, Mar the, er the early Marx version of alienation. And I was wondering if I'm missing something or if this is exactly what, what was being discussed. 
Um, hmm. So, so it, it's it's not far from that. Um, I think, it, at least to me, it's not. I, I think one of the challenges with Marx's alienation is that the idea itself is based around this idea of almost them being tricked. That uh, their desires are manipulated. Um, and that they actually have somewhere in them something more than those desires. Um, does that make sense as I say that? Like, it, 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 the, that's how I've always read it. Maybe it's different, but uh, worth asking. Yeah, I think I th it makes sense, and I'm, I'm probably just uh, falling back on, you know, a very uh, lax knowledge of Marx and alienated labor uh, versus alienation proper, but... Um, I think that does make a bit a bit more sense to me. Yeah. So, so the alienation within Marx is kind of this idea that, um, at least as I read it, that um, as we are atomized, as we are placed into a machine like this, we kind of lose um, our ability to determine what we should be doing, and we kind of just become cogs in the machine. Alienation yields cogs in the machine. This is that's a sort of dour view of the sense of, oh, well, what capitalism does is it makes us cogs in the machine, but we really, that's not how we're built. It sort of forces us via downward pressure. But I think they would answer that. And I mean, they do get into a little bit of this in, the, in shortly, but um, it, this is more to them about saying, well, wait, we desire alienation. Like it, it isn't, it isn't that this is done to us. It's not only are we willing participants, we're almost demanding participants in it. And I think that uh, to me is, is it's, it's a nuance perhaps, but it's a pretty significant difference between how Marx saw alienation from how they're seeing it, which is people join and it, because it feels good to do the job. And this is kind of also a core Marx thing with, it feels good to do work. It it does. It product product production is like a really amazing thing to do and be part of that and to make. But their argument is that this is actual production. That the alienation isn't uh, capitalism sort of repressing, but instead people demanding to be repressed. Okay. Yeah, that makes a little. Oh, yeah, that that settles a lot for me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just an edge on it because I think. You know, as, um, yeah, Marx uh, talked about alienation. It's a great quote. Um, Let us suppose we had carried out production as human beings. Each of us would have in two ways affirmed himself and the other person. In my production, I would have objectified my individuality, its specific character, and therefore enjoyed not only an individual manifestation of my life during the activity, but also when looking at the object, I would have the individual pleasure of knowing my personality to be objective, visible to the senses, and hence a power beyond all doubt. In your enjoyment and views, my product, I would have the direct enjoyment of being conscious of having satisfied a human need by my work, that is, of having objectified man's essential nature and having thus created an object corresponding to the need of another man's essential nature. This is, uh, I believe, I, I love to cook for people, this is literally the, I love this phrasing around it. It's one of my favorites because there's nothing quite like making something, seeing it made, seeing your power, and then having someone nourished and, and love something you've built and knowing that you've done that. There's, it's amazing. It, it reflects this incredible power we have. 
why would we then not assume, I think what Deleuze and Guattari would say, that our general position in society doesn't have the same thing, that it is us carrying out production. Now, it's production and service of the system, of love of the system, but it's doing its part. We, we enjoy being a cog in the machine. And that nature of being there, in the same way Marx talks about it, it's not so much alienation pushing down and removing us from that, it's actually that very fact of human nature that's putting us in this position as the social sort of is produced. And how anti-production operates is by taking credit for that production, and as such, we line ourselves up perfectly with it, smile, and ask for, please, sir, may I have another? Oh, he's also um, describing alienation, um, also in terms of uh, a psychological alienation, right? That's based on the um, the uh, perhaps the castration complex, right? That um, that uh, submits to the symbolic order, you mm -hmm. know, uh, in the name of the father, you know, and so that that's what the socialist represents, right? Is this kind of a people or other signifier that. Um, that uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, determines um, you know the molecular from a this molecular point of view, right? Mm, I I'd be, I would probably say no. Uh, this the socius isn't necessarily like a a big other or a symbolic thing. It is the emergent pattern of social production that happens under determinate conditions, uh, and it happens to be under capital because of a whole bunch of conditions that sort of set it up. The other socii that have, have existed, the other socialists, uh, the earth or the despot, it's not so much that they are symbolic. They, they are, there are symbolic elements to them, for sure. But it isn't so much that they're symbolic as much as the nature of how they maneuver production by how they are set up. Um, and they do that by sort of the manipulation of, um, you know, the filiative and the uh, alliant, the filiative and the alliant sort of axes that our desires actually built from. Uh, so when we talk about associates, it's not that, oh, I'm in worship of capital. Yeah, it's true, sure, but it isn't that you're in worship of capital. That's, that's the uh, sort of traditional psychoanalytic view. Oh, you want money. Oh, you want power. Oh, you want this when the underlying thing is actually the way that capital organizes desire is through uh, general repression that we actually take part in because the general machine that we're proud to be a part in because production feels great and we're producing and we get to be a piece of that by placing oneself in a position where we are traversed, broken, fucked by the socius, which is uh, this sort of weird wheel in a machine, even if it has no purpose, it still feels good because it is, as they phrase it, art for art's sake within the libido. The libido is able to attach desire, force, the things that it really wants. It's able to go, oh, this is powerful. I am part of this powerful thing, even though I'm not really doing very much. But desire is always open and always ready. Desire is a gape. Are you saying that uh, this, uh, this happens even without the beautiful complex? And that... Um that the Oedipal complex, uh, you know, that Freud, um, you know, um, uh, it, how he interpreted um, the process, um, became complicit in that, in that process that was already underway. I would say the, the Oedipus in, in the context of how they're talking about it isn't really 
central to capital. It's it's a symptom of it. And they kind of look at Freud and go, so here's why you think these, here's why you believe like the Oedipal sort of reality of man is, is determinate. There's these contingent things that cause it. One of the big ones is the nature of how we deal with repression and representation at large in a society. Um, because of how society is structured and how meaning is generated and axiomatics is generated, a child in a nuclear family, which is all we have because we're deeply broken up socially, is necessarily going to, to learn about everything in the world from either mother or father. As such, they're triangulated just by how meaning is given to them. My, I've always used my son as an example. Uh, my, my son, he's got some television. I gave him one, my wife chose others. He associates Pokemon with me and he associates Daniel Tiger with her. It's not that it's not that Daniel Tiger is more motherly or that he wants to stab Pokemon and kill it or fuck Daniel Tiger or whatever. It's it's that the nature of how meaning is produced yields these things. And the Oedipus complex, which does exist, and they do say they do explicitly say that, it isn't that it's determinate, it's that this is the way we're set up. We have general thrusts underneath us of desire, and we fall in line based on how the desire is conditioned after the fact, like say being made an Oedipalized where we're told, Oh, your desires are these things. Oh, so that's what it is. Excellent. Falls back on anti-production feels good. Part of the system. Thank you so much. And I get to continue to pursue that as long as I'm part of it. It doesn't do good by us. It's deeply repressive, which causes insane neuroses, insane mental problems and all kinds of issues with our own subjectivity and generalized oppression and repression, but it still feels good. So we like it. And that, that setup is kind of this underlying thing of why people police each other. It's, it feels good to tell someone else, even if, if you've done it, we've all done it, uh, explain to someone else or told them how they needed to behave or what to do. Uh, I was in the post office the other day and a woman was absolutely self-satisfied by telling me that because I had, I, I, oh, I forgot to sign the thing and I stepped out of the line to grab a pen to sign it. And I stepped back in line and she went, and you have to go to the back of the line. It was one of the most hilarious interactions I've had. I don't, I don't go out of the fucking house anymore, but she was happy to tell me that I needed to go back to the line because I, in her words, well, look, you just weren't ready. And that's the way it is. And it was like, holy fuck. I was, I just burst out laughing. It's this kind of thing feel. She was very satisfied with herself deeply. We all get that way. So you, you don't think that the, uh, the capitalism, a, a, a system of, um, you know, that is, uh, that has these kind of, um, you know, uh, axioms of, of, of uh, power and domination is a kind of culmination of, um, of the, uh, of the despotic and the, and, and the, uh, you know, all the, the ascetic ideal and so forth that came, came before it. I mean, it, I mean, it, culmination may be a tough word because culmination tends to mean a directed uh, sort of inevitability. Uh, the culmination of my work is this grand piece I wrote. Um, and I think there's more to come. Uh, but in the sense of uh, capitalism is a gigantic number of social machines that over time have been built, rebuilt, left by the side all the way through the entirety of humanity. And we have a certain organization of it generally speaking at large, we live in a capitalist space, but things are breaking and changing all the time, but capitalism underneath it, how our desire is manufactured and played 
going through the nature of capital itself. I don't think that's necessarily inevitable. I don't think it's um, necessarily the culmination, even though it's for sure, thanks to the nature of the the earth at one point and the way that it sort of shifted and writing came about and then representation and how we had power sort of injected into that because, you know, how writing was even brought about in the first place. I think there's a lot of challenges there. Does that, does that make sense? But it seems like the, uh, you know, there, there is an underlying, uh, you know, uh, uh, power or, you know, determinations of power whether you know it's capitalism or some other system, right? There, there are this, there, there is this kind of, um, you know, motive, uh, underlying motive of uh, you know, power within society, and capitalism is an expression. Of, it's just a, one expression of, of this power, right? Why? Well, and Jack, you have something? I, yeah. I think I think one thing to keep in mind is like. We want to understand how this stuff's constituted, right? Because as soci change, we're talking about major changes in conditions too, right? So like in terms of power, uh, just like desire, you know, it doesn't, um, it's not necessarily an essential thing, right? And I think that's critical here because like one of the things I see them working through is it's a, to me, it's a critical re-engagement with class theory. And a lot of what they're doing, as I read this, is they're moving class theory to the molar. And they're talking about how it functions in the molar. So right, it's not to say it's not real, but it is to say that in many ways, class theory, um, as, as I'm reading, it relies on lack and it relies on the molar. right? And this is where I think you can see some edipalization is right if if the 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 that which is the authority is usually the father right however that looks and that which is being um subjugated by the authority is usually the child right just to put it in really basic terms and that's one way of conceiving of power but i think i think what they're expanding here is to say that at some level there is that edible representation but stepping back from that for a minute and looking at how these power relations are constituted right if class theory um and, and the bourgeois and the proletariat are comprised in in at least in large part by these formations of lack and these aggregations right then not only are they going to rely on representations, but class itself functions through a kind of repression as a totality, as a molar uh, aggregate, right? As a molar formation, as a, as a piece of the structurality, as a probability, as we've talked about. So what I think they're getting at here, and especially this last sentence about uh, the socius fucking all these things, is to say that um, and it drives at a, a deep, I, I think in some ways, a deep assumption that we have when we do like class theory, but also some of large bit of political work, right? You know, unions are always in the right um, is an older idea, especially for more Marxian people. Um, that was really important for a while as you had to fight for the unions because as the proletariat, um, 
not only were they closer to human nature in a manner of speaking, or at least that's one way of understanding them, but that was the that itself was a constitution of a power relation. And what the proletariat aggregates to becomes a fight in and of itself, right? This is the pre-conscious. So that to to drive this toward a conclusion, so I can get so I can let somebody else speak. What I see them working toward then is like there's a line in the Balfame where where the, uh, it's actually the, the the title character. The Balfame says, "There's no difference between the angels serving at God's feet um, and the enjoyment they receive in that, and how a wasp feels when it grazes in a navel." Right. Putting that here for a second, we can kind of expand that point to say the kind of molar process, the molar formation, the molar investment that is taking place for the policeman as much as the worker in the factory, the, the tradesman as they're calling it, those constitutions of power relations are not so different. And if that's the case, that means like we can't just appeal to the proletariat in the same way the Russian Revolution does going back to a few pages ago, I see them really developing that argument to say, right, part of the reason this is a reactionary pre-conscious investment is it is focusing on not only these aggregations, but the point is to create re-territorialization as opposed to a deterritorialization, right? It's to reconstitute the molder in a manner of speaking or reproduce the molar, I think is probably the more accurate way to say it. Yeah, I'd also add, um, when we talk about power relations over the course of the different socii, power itself is kind of a really fascinating thing because it's tough. I think it would be tough to have a discussion in the primitive about power existing in the same way it does under uh, the despotism or under uh, capitalism. The, the nature of how repression happens or takes part is much more imminent and direct. Uh, um, certain people are set to certain things just by the, the rituals and literal carvings in their body. There's a brutality and a demand, but everyone belongs ultimately to the group. There is no individual in the same sense there is nothing that sort of goes beyond that everything is in service of the group the move from the that to the despot moves that sort of onus and the relations of anti-production um straight to that of uh flat boring political domination instead of uh the sort of internalized self-repression so the the nature of despotism is about sort of that flat domination. I'm going, you do what X, Y, and Z. Uh, these people are responsible for this, the priest class here, the caste group here. Um, there's a extraction that happens towards the king, the sovereign, the godhead, whatever it may be. It isn't quite the same inside of uh, the primitive, and in capital, it's even more that extraction of tribute from subjugated and subject peoples is significant play within the second social. But in the cap under capital, it's it's built in, deeply built in uh, to sort of the entirety of it. And so we have this really strange thing where we have less 
a single person, uh, uh, like the Palace of Versailles, getting just a shit ton of money and expending it in various different ways for their extravagance. Instead, we have uh, a political military industrial complex. Uh, instead, we have, I mean, a lot of different shit, to be frank. And that specifically sort of plays in a different direction and, and extracts differently. It's a, it's a different play kind of overall. And ultimately, um, we move anti-production away from sort of this, you know, repression early on uh, is very much a thing that is sort of baked into a person, especially through, again, you no subject sort of exists, but now anti-production and production are eminent to each other. They're, they're one and the same. They, they play within each other. And that change is, I think, also pretty significant as we move to capitalism, if that makes sense. Uh, Drew says, I was wondering about desire agape. And the French has it as uh, le desire b, which is gaping desire, which is, again, uh, I am 90% sure that's a, a reference to a whole. Um, it's, it's really it, difficult. It has to be, right? To not to read it that way, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's, if you, it's, it's everyone gets fucked called. by the socius, your butthole's agape. Like that's that's what it means. Like everyone's butthole is a desire is agape and waiting and I don't I, there's no other way I can interpret that. I've always tried to be very nice, but that's buttholes. Or vaginas or mouths or whatever, um probably. But it's desire is agape. It's desire's ready to be fucked. Desire is that. Desire's always ready. Well I'd I'd try and <laughs> not necessarily opposed to the anal uh, interpretation. Like I said, in 2022, it's it's difficult not to see that when we see the word agape. Right? That's, that's, that's one fair. of the codes we live with now. Is <laughs> um, true. Uh, but that said, we see... Well, that's true. Deleuze never made any other deeply sexual fucked up references to uh, anal rape at all. It, why would he oh. do that? No, he was a gentleman and a scholar. Yeah, very much. <laughs> but... Uh, just to connect that to two things, right? We saw that there's... They they talk about holes a little bit earlier. I think it's like they're talking about kind of perforations in desire where um, the revolutionary potential has the, has the ability to basically expand that and cause escape, right? So that's one thing that's here. But right next to it, at the very same time, is that molar problem, right? Because the other side I see to it is, so at one level, right, those holes have the potential to be, um, there's, there's things that can be done about them, right? The molar has the potential to be um, completely changed through a, a revolutionary deterritorialization, through a breakthrough. Yep. At one of the same time, there's that problem of the paralogism and syllogism, where the lack has that vacuole in the molar that affects the molecular formation, right? They talk about repression. One of the ways they talk about it is crushing the micromolecular singularities, mm. right? And I see some of that coming through here too, is like those kind of perforations, there's a way in which they can also be um, sort of like a hammer going through the, the circle, crushing as well. So you've got 
you know, once again, you have the potential for the revolution and reactionary coming through there. As much as you've got the uh, the obvious um, code of, uh, of of gaping. <laughs> Is that the same spelling for agape? Yeah, it's agape. Yeah, but but the same spelling for agape, right? Uh, I don't know that word. It okay. it's missing the accents. I I know what you're getting at because they're talking about erotic love and disinterested love. Yeah. So like agape being the nuts that's oh no, the Greek word. Yeah, yeah. Friendship is that the uh... yeah that platonic love or the highest form of it, right? That's why I had to go to the French because I was thinking desire agape and. Oh, no. See, I went straight to it. See, I watch more porn than you, I guess. <laughs> no, no, no way of knowing. Yeah. Um, but Not I, a thing we're going to challenge and find out today. No, uh, but I thought perhaps Masumi was doing a little joke there. Uh, this is the Masumi translation on my end. Oh. Um, uh, Masumi translation. Uh, I'm probably I'm I'm off on the translation. Just a second. It's a mm, Hurley's the one I'm pretty sure we're all reading. Hurley Seaman Lane. Yeah, it's Hurley. Um, I'm reading something else translated by Masumi, so I'm mixing. The uh, it's it's got it's got his he's he's always he's got an intro or forward he writes for like half of these. Which happens. But if, if please uh, upload a PDF <laughs> if Masumi's got a thing. I always love reading his versions of this shit. Um, I, I do want to get to the next paragraph, though, because it does continue what we're talking about, and I think it gets a little bit deeper into some of the parts of it. Because, again, uh, we're talking about libidinal investment, not necessarily the preconscious or the uh, in, in the interest the class interest, um, they, you might say. I, I just want to say to that, we got to be very careful talking about Masumi for legal reasons, because otherwise we'll be in Masu you. That's fucking terrible. You're fired. It's terrible. <laughs> You're fired. You're banned from the server forever. That's, that's one of the worst puns I've ever heard. That's, some of them are good. Some of them are good, Jack. That was, wow. Wow. Some people raise standards. I like to lower them. <laughs> uh, all right, I will continue. Not only can the libidinal investment of the social field interfere with the investment of interest and constrain the most disadvantaged, the most exploited to seek their ends in the impressive machine, but what is reactionary? <clears throat> uh, pardon me. What is reactionary or revolutionary in the, uh, in the preconscious investment of interest does not necessarily coincide in what is reactionary or revolutionary in the unconscious libidinal investment. A revolutionary preconscious investment bears upon new aims, new social syntheses, a new power, but it could be that a part, at least, of the unconscious libido continues to invest the former body, the old form of power, its codes, and its flows. It is all the easier, and the contradiction is all the better masked, as a state of forces does not prevail over the former state, 
Without preserving or reviving the old full body as a residual and subordinated territoriality. Witness how the capitalist machine revives the despotic Erstadt, or how the socialist machine preserves a state and market monopoly capitalism. But there is something more serious. Even when the libido embraces the new body, the new force that corresponds to the effectively revolutionary goals and syntheses from the viewpoint of the preconscious, it is not certain that the unconscious libidinal investment is itself revolutionary. For the same breaks, do not pass at the level of the unconscious desires and the preconscious interests. The preconscious revolutionary break is sufficiently well defined by the promotion of a socius as a full body carrying new aims, as a form of power or a formation of sovereignty that subordinates desiring production under new conditions. But even though the unconscious libido is charged with investing the socius, its investment is not necessarily revolutionary in the same sense as the pre-conscious investment. In fact, the unconscious revolutionary break implies, for its part, the body without organs as the limit of the socius the desiring production subordinates in its turn under the condition of an overthrown power, an overthrown subordination. Oh, here we go. God damn it. Where do I want to start with this one? I mean, we can go sentence by sentence, I suppose. Would that work? I'm pretty open. I mean, <laughs> this is good. Then you can start. Cool. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm going to start at the end then. <laughs> but that's what. That's God what damn it. Read a gape joke. Um, Fair. <laughs> So we've been talking about the difference between the breakdown and the breakthrough, right? Another perspective to take on that is the potential of re reactionary and revolutionary investments. One of the things I really attach to in this paragraph um, is how to understand that, right? We're back to this problem of when it's the pre-consciousness reactionary, right? One of the ways we can understand that is we're thinking about what the ego, what products of production the ego is going to attach to, to kind of put it in classic psychoanalytic terms, right? You know, so like with interest, right? Is it going to be the interest of the working class? Is it going to be the interest of um, housewives in a more classic Freudian sense, right? Kind of early Freud there. Um, or is it going to be the interest of uh, well, you know, you take your pick here. That's that's the point of the molar is that these groupings um, come with that gregarious aspect, right? And in that, there's a subordination, not just like a, a basic interpolation, right? But they're saying that the molecular gets subordinated. And I think one of the things they mean there is that um, at one and the same time, it, it's constituted as the limit of social production, um, it's also affected in such a way that the production itself is, if not quelled, um, certainly meant to be reconstituted, right? I've, I read that part earlier about um, every molar, every molecular formation is a, soul, uh, is a molar investment, I think it was. And that's kind of their point, right? Is this is another way of talking about how such molar investments are also kind of ensuring uh, molecular 
subordination, right? So that is to say that the the different assemblages will kind of conform or at least be um, in a certain sense regulated by the the large numbers by the gregarious, the statistical. You know, there's a few perspectives you can take on it. The difference there being that what the body without organs would do through the revolutionary potential, through the uh, the breakthrough, right, is it would basically, it wouldn't be that, you know, the proletariat takes over for the bourgeois. We're talking more about how those, those um, molarities themselves, those structural pieces are actually being um, basically you know, they're basically being overturned in and of themselves. That subordination um, is itself being uh, not reversed, just simply broken through, right? It's being broken in another sense. Well, and it's it's worth going back a bit to, um, uh, I want to say, the end of three, chapter, uh, chapter three. Um, can't remember which section directly. Oh, it's also too, but it's it's a discussion that uh, when they start bringing up how the Bedenal investment works and the two poles to go back to poles, we're talking about the the schizo and the paranoiac as they call it. Um, and we're going to be getting into this a lot in the next like five or six uh, paragraphs. Um, but when you're talking about kind of that, it's worth rereading a little bit earlier. Um, the two poles are defined: the one by the enslavement of production and the desiring machines to the gregarious aggregates that they constitute on a large scale under a given form of sovereignty, the other by the inverse subordination of molar aggregates to desiring production and the overthrow of power, the one by these molar structured aggregates that crush singularities, select them and regularize those they retain in codes or axiomatics, the other by the molecular multiplicities of singularities that on the contrary treat large aggregates as so many useful materials for their own elaborations. The one by the lines of integration, territorialization that arrest flows, constrict them, turn them back, break them according to the limits interior to the system. The other by lines of escape that follow decoded and deterritorialized flows, inventing their own non-figurative breaks or skizzes. This this movement that they're talking about uh, when they talk about this sort of investment of libidinal desire and how it sits and they do give it absolute primacy over the uh, uh, pre-conscious investment because we are talking about basically desiring machines in different places doing different things how they form and how they come this sort of pure libidinal essence that is charged with investing in the socius, its investment not necessarily revolutionary in the same sense as pre-conscious. In fact, we can have two completely different ones, and as such, we're able to have, and this again gets back to Reich's question, why do men desire their own repression? They they do in one of those two places, or a few others that they're going to be mentioning shortly. Even if they say otherwise, you can have a man screaming how he's uh, absolute liberty demands it, demands it, and then in the next breath talk about how uh, how we find that liberty inside of a hyper-Orthodox Christian right-wing theocracy. And it's like, hey, uh, let's uh, take a second. Uh, the, how do these... He's invested in those things unconsciously. It doesn't matter what his pre-conscious is. He's 
retroactively sort of answering that, but his investments at a base level, they play in those sort of two sides or along those two poles at least. Have you been listening to Billy Graham again? Oh, I, I actually have. Uh, as weird as that sounds. Um, I actually have. I, I don't, why, why, am, why am I doing that? Why, why would you even ask that? What an odd thing to ask. Uh, someone made a comment about two weeks ago on this server, uh, and we, I got in a discussion about uh, people uh, and Christians and how they sort of became sort of co-opted over time, over like 40 years. Last week, we talked a little bit about uh, Reagan and a few things. Um, it's just been a thing. And Billy Graham, and I, I've been literally going back and listening to his old sort of hardcore stuff. And it's it's amazing. But again, what are people attracted to? What is the libido heading towards? What is the thing that they're invested in? Billy Graham's a phenomenal example of this because you're able to somehow attach to the way that he is discussing things, to the intensities, to his power, to his push that he has that is ultimately in service absolutely of the current power structure. But the way he does it and the overall setup, somehow you get to feel and uh, you get to feel like you're the minority. Like white men who come from a Christian background are are downtrodden and revolutionary and there's, you're, you're the one who's discursive. And it's this really weird thing that happens. It's kind of amazing, actually. So to answer your question, yes, I've been listening to Billy Graham. It ain't just charisma, Jean-Claire. It ain't just charisma. Well, and this gives us insight into the constitution of the gregarious, right? Because, you know, it's not about getting at the essence of Christianity in like an ideological sense, right? Yep. It's more about the fact that these kind of groupings function, um, it's both power and desire, right? Because Billy Graham is not, I don't, I don't, take him to be like the strong man of that group you know the kind of charisma that i think jan claire is seeing there that is in and of itself a relationship of desire and power that is allowing for those flows right that constitutes those flows it's not that um i mean he is a really powerful speaker don't get me wrong well, he's a good speaker yeah. for sure he's charismatic no. for sure like i'm not disagreeing with that he is charismatic yeah but it's to understand that it's not because of something inside of him that made him charismatic. That charisma would be lost if it weren't for those relations of desire and power that allow that those flows and allow those blocks to to move in such that to move in the way we're discussing. If that makes sense, Jean Claire, that's actually a really good way to put it. I think it's it's. If you removed all of us from being able to pretend we even have an ego or a subject or a name, and we're just pure intensities sort of waffling around the planet, as we are now, just say we just did this, science fiction, join me on my, my high concept sci-fi binge, and we just did this, people would still be like super wanting, like all your desire machines would be wanting to fuck Billy Graham or all these guys, like different people would be, because they're intent they're attached to this flows of intensity how these intensities sort of flow over each other and recognize themselves in this moment and by doing so 
they identify themselves and, and there's these powerful interactions that happen at that very base level before we even get to the, he talks well, or, uh, what he's saying, I agree with, or any sort of investment that happens pre-consciously at the base level, libidinally, we're like super into it. And it's, uh, it's, it happens before we even know it. And then, but it, it works against the left as well. Because that's when we hit, I think, something we've seen over the last year, but I think most of my lifetime on, on sort of every side. But why is it that uh, people who seemingly do have absolutely the most leftist, universalist ideas on freedom and liberty, um, why is it that like, they end up doing hilariously right-wing stupid bullshit in their daily lives, or they become what we might call corrupted? Oh, they, it turns out they just wanted money all along and they tricked us it has always been a deeply unsatisfying answer for me because it removes the, the lived experience of the person every time. And it just presumes that anyone who doesn't do what I like is like some demon waiting to come out, which is stupid. Well, it's, it's because at the underneath level, they can be in line. Like someone can have revolutionary pre-conscious investments. And that means they're like into destroying this or overturning that and fighting the power, they can absolutely have that. Their libido may not match up with that. They're still, they're still eh, a little bit behind the times. They're still a little attached to this or that. That's uh, the line they have here. And it's, it's just great. They're talking about this, the, um, but even though the unconscious libido is charged with investing the socialist, this investment is not necessarily revolutionary in the same sense as the pre-conscious. In fact, the unconscious revolutionary break implies for its part the BWO as the limit of the socius that desiring production subordinates in its turn under the condition of an overthrown power and overthrown subordination. You start in this really interesting way of combining these two elements and seeing how they go and realizing if they're not both aligned, if we aren't able to do that and we aren't able to get to the place of pure molecular flows and also the destruction or the, I like their phrasing of the sort of utilizing representation or the molar as its own, what is the way they phrase it? As so many, God damn it, where's the phrase? As so many tools where like, oh, I'm just gonna, those are words, excellent, I'm gonna play with them and build my own shit out of them. This subjugating the molar to the molecular, if we don't do both of those, either can be revolutionary, but you're not gonna actually get out of stuff. And, and to your point, right, to drive this point home once again, you know, and in some ways this is a very Nietzschean point, um, which is why it can be so challenging in many ways, because it, it is very undercutting. Like to what you're saying there um, earlier on about like the left and that, you know, it's the same kind of thing as the, the class conflict problem, right? You can take the class conflict, as, as I explained it earlier, you can take that as just one instance of this, where there is a, a group identified through the gregarious, through the molar, that doesn't seem to live up to what we thought it was, right? To live up to the probability. And this is in some ways understanding um, that escape anticipating the escape as opposed to a co-opting, right? Because it's, it's the same point as like the police exerting, uh, the kind of policing exerted as a power, whether by a cop, a trade union, 
people on Twitter, it's less the that point. It's more the point that you know that is a con that that kind of thing is very consistent, right? Because it comes with the gregarious in that manner. Um, that kind of power relation, it's not exclusive to um, the formal institution of the cops any more than be to um, the kind of decentralized formations on Twitter, right? Those kind of aggregations utilize uh, these kind of power relations uh, and are constituted with them, right? Uh, almost irrespective of what the, the gregarious will be because whatever it ends up being, if it's the trade union and if it's something else is contingent on these formations, right? This is why it kind of keeps, it's almost a Keynesian point, right? About the short run. It, it keeps being reproduced in this manner, or at least that's the great risk. And I would add, it's one of the things that, uh, because, and it's the joke they make at the end here effectively is that, you sort of have this other problem they talk about throughout here about how people are basically still invested in this sort of old system. It's these things don't disappear. It's it's the things don't just disappear overnight and a revolution happens. It like stuff exists and we need to deal with it and we need to utilize that either as representational fodder for our own machinations or in subordination to it. And you end up in this place where it's well, why aren't the workers? It's, well, because they're literally embedded within capital in ways that you can't even imagine. They're, they're so invested in the system and being part of it, it feels good. Uh, you can see this in a lot of what over time has shifted. Um, I have one of the first ones that comes to mind is I, have a, uh, I had a friend uh, who I thought was a very, very, uh, it was when I was living in San Francisco, they, he uh, and his, his husband they uh, weren't quite recognized. They were in San Francisco. Gay marriage wasn't legal. And he was absolutely violently for, like he was taught, it was awesome. Like his fiery, crazy language we'd get into. He wanted to change everything. Lo and behold, uh, gay marriage becomes a thing. He and his husband have adopted. They're lovely people. Uh, at some point, uh, he's not for trans rights. And it was a weird moment of discussion because it, what it, became clear was is it's not so much that he was there for changing the system as much as please let me have my part in it. And once he did the, the wording changed and the way he thought about things shifted this, I think we see a great deal of the time when it comes to the proletariat. Uh, there's the joke about how uh, every Trump voter is an uh, embarrassed uh, a temporarily embarrassed millionaire who's deeply poor or only worth a few hundred thousand there tomorrow I'll be a millionaire. There's a lot of people like that. Just let me be part of the system. And it's one of those things capitalism does very well for So it's why identity politics does so well too, is essentially it's just wanting to be recognized as a proper consumer and identified as such by the system at large. But once you have, you've got yours, uh, turfs. This is the same mentality. Uh, Women for years, I want to be recognized, want to be recognized. And then lo and behold, uh, people, there's uh, the turfs get recognized. But now, oh no, now we've got to recognize some. Nope, I'm part of the system now. Thank you very much. I have no desire for uh, anything to change because I am part of a machine. And so that sort of mentality ends up being one where it's, where are the investments? Where are the ways that you're thinking about this? And how do they line up? 
And underneath it all, are you revi reviving, like capitalism as a whole revived the despotic Erstadt, or are you reviving these old repressions as you do this? And it's a really incredible sort of, again, way to break it down. Uh, Drew, I'm going to read your quote uh, from page 279. But the revolutionary knows that escape is revolutionary. Withdrawal, freaks, provided one sweeps away the social cover on leaving or causes a piece of the system to get lost in the shuffle. So great. Um, it, it, it is breaking things down systemically. It is being against it both levels and multiple others as we'll get into. But there is a marriage to the machine that is important to be aware. And it's one we all probably have here. Like, this is not a, hey, uh, I'm cool, I don't have it. Like, we all have some level of this shit. It's very, very difficult to identify. Um, and so it's just about, you know, constantly being self-aware about it and doing your thing. That's just my opinion. But yeah, it's, uh, I'm always fascinated by it. It's um, um, the way that uh, traditionally hyper-repressed classes, once they are sort of gained some level in it, you know, I always love my uh, Irish friends who scream about how awful the Irish were treated and then aren't against, like, generalized civil rights. It's just like, because now they're white. Like, they weren't, like, 50 years ago. Um, so it's just a weird, weird thing that happens. I, people just want to be part of the system. And it feels good once you're there. That's, that's a great example, though, like your point about the whiteness. Like, there was, you're right, there was an exclusive disjunction for the WASP and the Catholic. Oh right. yeah, did completely different constitutions of whiteness. Can right? you imagine? Remember, JFK gets elected, and everyone's like, I'm, "I'll be goddamned if a Catholic's president." And I'm just like, "Like people don't yeah. like that was that was my parents' lifetime. It, it was a big deal that he was a Catholic and an oh, Irishman. Yeah. Disgusting." But you know, that, and that's exactly what we're talking about here. Is that then all of a sudden, right? All you know, the Catholics, that molar molar formation is now moving ahead. Right. That's exactly what we're talking about, where like it's the same thing for the trade unions, where, you know, the, the representation of the tradesmen, that aggregate can just as easily shift to something else tomorrow, whether it's the, today it's the tradesman, tomorrow it's the guy who has no money on the street. Those aggregates are exactly what what Deleuze and Water are warning us about, because you're right, the constitution of power there. You know, what they're thinking about, I think, is more like those kind of exclusive disjunctions would get torn down, would get overturned in an actual revolutionary investment, as opposed to a new, um, a new biunificalization being reproduced, right? Today, Protestant or Catholic, tomorrow, uh, Islamic or Christian, right? It's, in some ways, that seems to be where we're at now. But it's the, it's the same problem. Right? It's that same problem of molarity. Yeah. And, I, and that's the line they have about it could be the trade unionists is, is again, getting to that point where they're like, look, this isn't like, hey, we're on the left. Isn't that great? Your trade unions will solve everything. And that's all we need. It's like, no, no, all, can be any of this. Is it, are you carrying the state with you? Are you carrying these like, old ways and investments with you because why not have the worker and the trade unionist exactly as a gape as the banker and the cop? Uh, the, 
the Nietzschean expression of this, and it, it hits at the paranoiac. The way he says it in the genealogy, right? He actually, I, I forgot about this. He picks on the Jews, but he he basically says it's the one way to say it is it's the symptom. It, it's the it's the mass hysteria expressed as the chosen people to to put the two the three thinkers together, mm-hmm. right? That chosen people aspect. That's when you know you can start to see the gregarious flushing out. Uh, at least for Nietzsche. And and certainly in some ways for how we're understanding the paranoiac here, you know, I'd say that's right in line with how Deleuze and Water are warning us against the the molar here is that, you know, that kind of chosen people syndrome. It, it's mm-hmm. and you're right, Brutz, we it's you know, we're interpolated. We find that happening all the time. Well, with that, I think I do want to move to the next paragraph because we start getting into, I think, a little bit more specificity, and I think it'll set us up nicely for ending there um, because it moves us. After that, next week, we will be able to go right into subject groups and subjugated groups, which is a big deal when it comes to uh, a lot of shit. So we'll do that next week, and this will be perfect. So I'm going to continue. The pre-conscious revolution refers to a new regime of social production that creates, distributes, and satisfies new aims and interests. But the unconscious revolution does not merely refer to the socius that conditions this change as a form of power. It refers within this socius to the regime of desiring production as an overthrown power on the body without organs. It is not the same state of flows and schizes. In one case... The break is between two forms of socius, the second of which is measured according to its capacity to introduce the flows of desire into a new code or a new axiomatic of interest. In the other case, the break is within the socius itself in that it has the capacity for causing the flows of desire to circulate following their positive lines of escape and for breaking them again following breaks of productive breaks. The most general principle of schizoanalysis is that desire is always constitutive of the social field. In any case, desire belongs to the infrastructure, not to ideology. Desire is in production as social production, just as production is in desire as desiring production. But these forms can be understood in two ways, depending on whether desire is enslaved to a structured molar aggregate that it constitutes under a given form of power and gregariousness, or whether it subjugates the large aggregate to the functional multiplicities that it itself forms on the molecular scale. It is no more a case of persons or individuals in this instance than in the other. If the pre-conscious revolutionary break appears at the first level, it is defined by the characteristics of a new aggregate, the unconscious or libidinal break belongs to the second level and is defined by the driving role of desiring production and the position of its multiplicities. It is understandable, therefore, that a group can be revolutionary from the standpoint of class interest and its pre-conscious investments, but not be so, even remain fascist and police-like from the standpoint of its libidinal investments. Truly revolutionary pre-conscious interests do not necessarily imply unconscious investments of the same nature. An apparatus of interest never 
takes the place of a machine of desire. Once again, very challenging, right? And there's just a lot. <laughs> a lot there's of, so much said here. Yeah. What sticks out to you? Um, well, so the the lines I like is when we're basically kind of putting together um, what, generally speaking, a truly revolutionary subject might be made of in the two cases. And he says pretty crisply, they write pretty crisply here, uh, in uh, to say, uh, on the one uh, case, the break is between two forms of socius, the second of which is measured according to its capacity to introduce flows of desire into a new code or axiomatic. The other case, the break is within the socius itself, and that it has the capacity for causing the flows of desire to circulate following their positive lines of escape, and for breaking them again following breaks of productive breaks. The escape causing escape, the breaks following productive escapes. This is a, um, and it's maybe even just the uh, translation, but this is a, a, a rhythm that they've used throughout it. Escapes causing breaks, breaks causing breaks, blah, 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 blah. Like this sort of thing that causes and repeats itself, this sort of, uh, I do a thing, and if it's in this revolutionary spirit, it's causing these secondary knock-on effects that are not intentional, like it's like the opposite of that, but instead are sort of emergently revolutionary and collide and continue the emergent revolution behind things. And I really, really adore that, um, that mentality. It's a big one for me. So that sticks out to me, um, but uh, in terms of like difficulty of it and where we can get in, it's, it's the final sentence. Um, um, understandable that a group can be revolutionary. We know this. Not be so, even remain fascist. But truly revolutionary pre-conscious interests do not necessarily imply unconscious investments of the same nature. I get that, but I do not understand this last sentence. An apparatus of interest never takes the place of a machine of desire. Is The only thing I can think is that it's, it's quite literal in the sense that um, I may have a pre-conscious interest um, as a thing, uh, but that interest is just literally that is almost a, a direction at best. But the, the machines of desire, the desiring machines underneath it, uh, it, it doesn't take the place. It can't. The desiring machines are always connecting, disconnecting, producing, and doing their thing. It doesn't matter what my pre-conscious shit is, has going on. But that feels like it's overly simplistic for the way that this section is written. So I feel like, yeah, there you go. I, th I think the thing that makes it weird is like it's so it's such a simple phrase for them. You know, we get used to like the the micro multiplicities of desire deterritorializing the multiplicities that follow the ontogenesis. Right, like we just get used to some of the jargon. But I think kind of how I'm thinking about it is like, it's like the apparatus is probably tied to like that, like Deleuze's uh, thoughts and um, what is it, dispositive, the the essay of engaging Foucault. But for our purposes, right, I think we can probably just simplify it to, it's the difference between the penal colony machine and the the molecular formation being repressed, right? So this is basically a point about how um, there there is a revolutionary to the to the molar, 
but it's not an unconscious revolution, right? We're basically talking about, uh, and, and this will be kind of, you know, this will certainly cut deep in some ways because once again, you know, the Nietzschean influence, but, you know, it's basically just saying we're changing an instrument of repression upon the molecular. And while that is revolutionary, it's revolutionary insofar as it's subjugating. And, you know, it does kind of, at least it hits me in that way where it's like, you know, it, it does happen that way sometimes, right? To go from like, I mean, the examples are countless, but just to go back to like our tradesman thing, right? You know, it, it, it's what Foucault puts his finger on in the introduction where we have to guard against um, trying to redefine rights and to reestablish rights as philosophy has defined them. And, you know, the easy example of that is Locke, right? Natural rights. So you go to the Constitution, right? We hold these rights to be uh, certain and inalienable, that all men are created equal. Right? This is the kind of thing they're talking about where, yeah, it's revolutionary, but at a pre-conscious level. And insofar as that is taking place, we're talking about a different instrument of um, molar repression, right? That is changing. There's no doubt about that, but it's a change in repression. Yes. Well, it gives us a almost mathematical way, algebraic almost, of looking at various what we can call revolutions in time and separate out uh, things because ultimately we're talking about on the one side uh, the pre-conscious revolutionary break and the unconscious revolutionary break they have to line up uh, pre-conscious needs to ultimately be in some service or aim of new new aims new interests new socius new all of that new codification new forms of power just like an aim uh, towards new whereas the unconscious revolutionary break needs to ultimately be about pushing molecular desire molar forms being sort of subjugated to that. If we go back in time and we start grabbing random revolutions, you can see actually, generally speaking, where these things semi fell apart. You can go with the Russian Revolution or the American Revolution or the French Revolution or really any of these as we start talking about what is the, the pre-conscious revolutionary break that was happening. What, did, what is it the thing they were, they were driving at? Well, it was trying to change and shift how power is set up. I think even in America, we could say that. Uh, uh, they're wanting to change and switch to a democratic rather than a monarchic, uh, sort of do away with elements and have more representation, whatever ideological bent you want to put on it. But uh, underneath it, sure. But unconsciously, what were they invested in? It certainly wasn't molecular desire subordinating molar forms underneath. Quite the opposite. Uh, generally speaking, they were deeply... Un, you know, uh, unconsciously invested in very much the status quo and the power structures. They just simply shifted kind of how they called it and a little bit of stuff. And, uh, you know, cool, keep the, keep the slaves. We'll keep women where they're at. And we won't really change that much because we're going to keep the landed gentry in charge. We're just going to make it so it's more of us. And then that uh, Russian Revolution, I think a very, very good argument that, it wasn't drastically different in that sense where you had the pre-conscious revolutionary spirit not really, you know, doing anything crazy, but wanting to change it, get rid of a 
the czar, open things up, you know, dictatorship of the proletariat, all these things. But absolutely were unconsciously invested in the general way things were. The system, the the elements from before rather than something changing. And the idea of doing sort of transitory periods, perhaps. Um, let's say you're China, uh, as an example. Um, there's a there's a there's a play here they're making, I think, that starts to open up and again answer Reich's question of why men desire their own repression. It's not so much that they directly desire their own repression, but instead that as these revolutions break out or changes happen, they may be have pre-conscious general investments towards the thing of something new and different, sure, but unconsciously, they're very much attracted to the generalized power and intensities that followed the uh, you know, gregarious uh, forms of everything. And then the investment of the standard way desire is produced and, and handled. It's a really kind of incredible uh, way that they're talking about it. I dig, I dig the shit out of it. Yeah. To, to push, you can tell I've been reading the genealogy of morals again, right? I've taken a yeah. lot of first. Yeah, it's clearly obvious, right? But taking, taking the point um, earlier about, you know, you, you see this with Nietzsche's point about, um, it's why he focuses on, on the Jews, is right? This, this chosen people thing is, he argues that that's slave morality there, right? And, and it is a form of gregariousness, is able to institute a transvaluation of values. But it does, through, it does this through resentment, right? It does this through resentment. And that's one of the big problems with it for Nietzsche is it, it does something he's interested in, but it also comes with this resentment. And eventually, right, to push this into what we're talking about now, that comes, you get the chosen people of, of, of Jewish people transitioning to a power, to a series of apparatuses, really, but to to power distributed no longer um, in that sense, but in the sense of Christianity, right? So, you, you know, right, we all know the story there. This is part of what Deleuze and Guadagni, I think, are getting at is, you know, this kind of subjugation is similar to slave morality in the sense that um, it, it can constitute a majority, but the more important point is that it's constituted through the aggregation, right? So, you know, it's very Keynesian in that sense. It's not so much that it's a true minority, right? Just like the Christians weren't at first, just like the Jews um, very seldom are. It's more the sense that this, um, this representation of the group functions in this way and right the the transition we're talking about say in the russian revolution from from the uh the czardom i guess for lack of a better word the kingdom uh from the czar to um uh to the bolsheviks right in a manner of speaking from the from the bourgeois to the proletariat that's not so much a point about the petite bourgeois as i'm reading it it's a point that um that same thing perspective of a chosen people just like from the the, the the Jews to the Christians for Nietzsche we have that same thing happening here where you move from the czars and that kind of um, chosen people to the, uh, the Bolsheviks and a new form of chosen people it's that same point about you know the apparatus changes 
and so too does the subjugation. So you haven't actually released anything, right? You haven't caused the escape. You've caused the escape to, um, to basically shut down the escape. Right, so like putting in the paranoiac perspective, right? The re-territorialization is to debuffer um, the revolutionary deterritorialization, the unconscious one, the, the molecular one. It's it's um, and Ash brings up Code Guess, and I think there's uh, Dune would be another I think really interesting version of this. And there's a lot in literature, there's a lot in anime and movies. Uh, Dune, just to run with it, because I think it's a really strong version. Is uh, you know, we got Maudiv, we've got uh, Paul, who's uh, sort of slated to be the savior, and he's hyper charismatic, and he's actually in the position to completely change how the entire empire runs. Uh, and lo and behold, when he's able to, he decides just to put himself in power and make his changes. I suppose would be the way to put it, um, and slaughter billions of people. Um, Underneath it, he absolutely wants, like he, he talks and he wants to have these changes. He probably has some level of pre-conscious of interest in that, just in general. But underneath it, there's an attachment to the, the way things were, especially as he was trained and taught these are how things are from kind of birth. It's a prince after all, um, or son of Duke Leto, whatever you want to say. But um, that sort of mentality, I think, puts us in some really fun stuff especially again, talking about how the leftism works today and what people are attached to. We have someone who's come on the server recently and said things like, uh, Putin is revolutionary. Uh, <laughs> just the, <sighs> um, there, there is underneath it, the investments and how they play is really what matters. It rhetoric isn't what matters, not even necessarily what your personal class interest is or your pre-conscious interest or investment. It doesn't even matter because libidinal investments have primacy and they're the things that actually are going to shape and change all the aspects of wherever you end up. You could end up in uh, what you claim is a, a communist country free from everything and lo and behold, you have the most hardline authoritarian uh, nightmare land uh, that can exist. It's, this happened. These are things that happen. It's just the way it goes. Desire is at the base. And, and this is where we can, you know, expand that point too, to tie into some of this. That, like I said, obviously I've been reading the genealogy again, <laughs> but to tie that in with the resentment too, right? You know, taking resentment as a kind of apparatus, right, as a form of, of desire uh, qua social production. This becomes the risk, too, is that the way that this can change is risked there because there's a form of power constituted through the apparatus, not necessarily uh, against the apparatus, although in a sense it kind of is, but it relies on the apparatus nevertheless. Um, that is to make this transition from one chosen group to the other, right? That's the great risk I see them talking about is that, you know, there is a there is a pre-conscious that enables these interests, but it does so similar to, to Nietzsche's point of resentment that being in the position, um, uh, for him it's slave morality, right? Being in the position of slave morality 
comes with this capacity that um, we see here in Anti-Oedipus being identified with not only the paranoiac, right, but obviously there is a great um, fascist or they'll say policing risk with that. Uh, it is a very serious challenge they're making. But that's my last Nietzschean remark for the day. Not bad. Uh, I'll open it up questions or anything on this before we next week get into subjugated and subject groups. Uh, please, anything here that's uh, confusing or anything we should expand more on. Again, I'm not necessarily going to be an expert on a lot of this. I have my own thoughts, but there is uh, this is where a lot of the rubber meets the road for these these writings. So it's um, there's a lot of hot takes uh, outside of there besides me. And I I'm, I'm, might be on the hotter take on some of this stuff, I guess. How do I define the pre-conscious? Oh, my Lord. <sighs> there's, there's a few ways. I mean, the classic way is, right, the, the classic psychoanalytic way is that it's the piece of the unconsciousness that the, the ego is going to work with, right? Uh, for Deleuze and Guattari, we're kind of expanding that now to say that like that is related to the molar, that is related um, often to the paranoiac, right? So there's a lot of things, there's a lot of pieces they're adding to it. But, you know, that's why the interests I think are kind of interesting is taking the ego out for a minute, it becomes a question of why why do these things constituted through the unconscious and the molar go after these products, right? Why do they go after things like interests? Because the interests themselves still have to be produced. Is it's this is not a rational, like they want, they are thinking through how to maximize their self-interest per se. This is why do they want those things and how are those things wanted? Oh, I'm, 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 I, I'm not even sure we're though talking about things necessarily. It's um, desiring machine. The unconscious is made of desiring machines. Desiring machines are almost singular without aim. They're just connecting and, and they're not like trying to grab the next things. In mass, the unconscious at large is kind of aiming at general intensities because it's like section sexual. It's like, Oh yeah, give me more. Oh, Oh, there's a lot happening there, that kind of thing. But it's not that thought. It's just the unconscious going. The pre-conscious is kind of a, as to say these desire machines is sort of globbed together as they've connected and do stuff. There's a level of development and emergence that happens with this, that at some point, um, an aim shows up like, and at some point they become aimed uh, just like uh, you need, you need two dots in order to draw a line. A single dot doesn't have a direction or velocity. You, you need to have movement. You need to have aim. And it's, it's more of a thrust towards, I'm not sure it's necessarily fully like, Oh, I want uh, this white house. Like, I think there's some level towards that, but I think there's the pre-conscious is like a level of development that's almost uh, a little bit before that even. Because it, 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 is, it is sort of Nietzsche's version of consciousness and the stuff that happens right before it. And that's, that's where the pre-conscious, I think, first comes in. Yeah. As you were saying that, one thing that occurred to me, another way to say it is, right, 
it's the paralogisms, right? Because to your point about the, the White House, when that appears as a lack, right, on top of, and that's this is the molar now, when that appears as a kind of lack, right, at that point, we're, we're probably talking about the preconscious. Yeah, maybe. Yes. I think that's possible. Also, is he talking about the uh, preconscious as a, as in uh, one form is a, uh, the ideology that represents um, uh, a, a you know universal interest. I I don't know about universal interests. Um, I I think a lot of this is them sidestepping ideology. I would say almost completely. Um, yeah. He does say that uh, you know, um, in any case, desire belongs to the infrastructure, not to ideology. In that line there, uh, and then the apparatus, an apparatus of interest never takes the place of the machine of desire. So I kind of uh, was trying to understand the apparatus, apparatus of interest. Are those um, kind of ideas or you know ideologies or or um, you know uh, universal kind of interest that uh, represents um, large aggregates, perhaps? I think um, pre-conscious tends to be towards that. Uh, so again, uh, if the unconscious doesn't have any concept of that, and if, like, a, as they talk about here, an unconscious revolutionary break would be towards basically the propagation of further unconscious molecular development for its own sake or sort of uh, that instead of in service of grander sort of stories. Uh, you might call that uh, in, instead of ideological service, but for its own good. The pre-conscious at large, I think, generally speaking, is kind of about um, playing with social aims, specifically. Like, it is necessarily, like, the social aspect of it. Um, so, like, uh, I think I would say, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if what I'm saying makes sense. I feel like I have a point in there. It may take me a moment. I'm sorry, JK. I'm going to take a second. In his later book, uh, you know, Thomas um, Platos, he, he talks about the war machine. So would a war machine be kind of a pre-conscious um, uh, revolutionary? Would that represent uh, the pre-conscious? Yes. For sure. Well, it would, it would, it would it, it's not representing the pre-conscious, but uh, the way that they talk about the war machine and... Um, they do so in uh, nomadology, I believe. Um, the the nature of how we would continue a revolution or how we would get to that point is necessarily having the unconscious and pre-conscious interests matched up towards these very particular sets up. Because again, the the way that um, the way that desire and interest sort of coexist, they don't co coincide. Desire, again, has no interest. It has investments. It has thrusts in some way, but it's not the same kind of thing. They don't coincide. Um, uh, unconscious and pre-conscious things may not coincide at all. They're just sort of around each other. And so because of that, we have this really interesting thing where a group, as they say, may be revolutionary from the standpoint of class interest and its pre-conscious investments, and there's many of those out there, but not be so, but actually even remain fascist and police-like from their in, in libidinal. It's again, how we sort of allow these things to be. If desire is 
being uh, utilized in service of um, representation and aimed at that and uh, going sort of with the paranoiac or nostalgic or any of those that's driving at the things we know, which desiring machines are more than happy to. They, they kind of, they're idiots. They're, they don't have a, they don't understand that shit. That's not great. Even if you're, oh, I really want to go for a communist society. You know, the one, the one we've talked about for so many years. And it's that, that representation that you're in service of, you're break, you're breaking anything that may be because unconsciously you actually have a very specific representation of that. And uh, like a lot of tanky groups uh, and a lot of pseudo leftist groups, you become internally fascist and police-like because your libidinal investments are so deeply attached to representation in general. Selection does not presuppose a primary gregariousness. No, no, very much. This is about aleatory phenomena. That's a big deal for Deleuze through logic of sense. Sorry, uh, Drew is uh, throwing out a handful of quotes from the book that absolutely is um, very much about that. I think uh, uh, JK and Jack, uh, who've been in a lot of, or all of uh, the logical sense readings would agree. It's a big deal for them. Well, for him, especially. You said something earlier that I liked. I'm trying to remember what it was. <laughs> well, I've never said anything anyone's liked. Don't lie. Hey, listen, babe. <laughs> now, you were saying something about... Um, damn. Recording bot, help me out here. No, I, take, take a second. You can ignore me because I just want to read a little bit from Holland again because I do like his summary of this. Um, investment is not for delusing watery a matter, matter of ideology, of interests misunderstood or led astray. It is a matter of desire and of how and where desire can invest a greater degree of force and power, even from a distance or even against one's interests. And he puts that in quotes. The most disadvantaged, the most excluded members of society invest with passion the system that oppresses them. They always find an interest in it, since it is there that they search for and measure it. Which I think is a deeply profound sentence, because that last bit, it is in the system that they search for and measure it. When we talk about what an investment is from a pre-conscious state, where are you finding your investments and interests, your pre-conscious ones? If you're a proletariat and you call yourself one, you're searching and finding your investments inside of what we currently have as representational understandings and a network effect around what communism may have been called at one point or another. Do you know how irrelevant that is to literally everything? But, but you will say, I am an actual leftist and you go all fucking tanky. Well, lo and behold, what you're actually interested in is the representation, which actually for is the story. You're actually finding and constrained, constrained to the system in order to define yourself in terms of it. Now, last time around, I used the, the story of like high school, and I don't know if it's true anymore. I'm old. It's the way it works. Um, but there's uh, the cool kids, and then there's the kids who like, Oh, I hate the cool kids. And you literally defined yourself by doing whatever they didn't. Uh, 
South Park has them as the emo kids and the emo kids are like a perfect example of this, but it's an old trope where in order to not be part of the system, you just triangulate yourself directly opposed to it. And lo and behold, you have found your interest in the system because that is where you search for and measure it. It's that, that investment in the system is as powerful as anything else. And it's one of those things that it's worth realizing they're, they hear, um, and it's what I love. Their huge push is much more, a, um, we actually need to be in service of new and the molecular, and it's gotta come at every level, not just, hey, I want a new society, but I'm gonna invest in these things over here still. That's, that's the break. And this is how we get to the place where they say things like there is no, uh, the proletariat isn't necessarily where we find the power or the revolutionary spirit. We need to get outside of these thoughts and start breaking apart from it. Um, and we will get to that because next week it is subject and subjugated groups. And I highly suggest pre-reading the next two or three paragraphs. Um, if you have questions, please post in, in here. Um, and we will discuss because it is a significantly complex subject, but a very good one too. So I do suggest it. That I'm gonna go ahead and close out the recording and say thank all of you for joining. This is wonderful as always. Thanks so much. Highlight of my week. That's been a fun one. Thank mm-hmm. you.